Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. In the book of Acts, we've been learning a lot about being witnesses for Jesus, uh, who help others come to know Him as as their Lord and Savior, because He's the truth, right? He's the truth that people need. But today we find ourselves uh, living as witnesses in what we would call a post-modern culture. It's just a big technical term that means, oh, it's a, it's a worldview that, that has the idea that everybody can have their own truth. Influenced by atheism, evolution, and socialism, many no longer believe in God, and thus, many believe there's no such thing as ultimate reality, what we might call objective truth, eternal fixed truth. Instead of truth being something that is concrete, something that's fixed, we might say, uh, objective, unchanging, truth has become fluid, kind of like some other things, right? <laughs> uh, truth is fluid. It's not, it's not fixed. It's not concrete. It, it it's subjective or relative, we might say. Uh, today, instead of there being truth with a, a capital T, as I would like to refer to it today, truth with a capital T, we can all just kind of have our own truths with a lower cra- lowercase t. Uh, truth that's, you know, you can have your truth, I'll have my truth. It's a personal perspective or opinion type of truth. Uh, You've probably heard people say things like, that's true for you, but not true for me, right? Uh, You have your truth, I have my truth. Just find your truth and then live it, they say. Or dare, be bold enough to live your truth. By the way, if someone says there's no such thing as truth, what do you ask them? Is that a true statement? (laughs) Is that a true statement? That there's no such thing as truth. See how it's self-defeating? But uh, that's the popular notion uh, these days, at least for many folks, postmodernists, who say that no one can have any exclusive claim on truth because truth is limited to one's personal perspective, maybe their culture, their feelings, their their experience. In fact, uh, 91% of Americans would agree with this statement here that the best way to find yourself or maybe to find truth, is to look within yourself. Just look within. Um, 6% of teenagers say that they believe moral truth, uh, agree that moral truth is absolute. They would say moral, only 6%. So basically, 94% would say there's no such thing as absolute morals. Like the morals are flexible, relative. Uh, adults, 36 and over, said uh, 
that they believe in moral relativism. So your morals are relative. Basically, uh, if it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then it's okay. Or everyone else is doing it, why not me, right? So it's just, it's fluid, relative, we, we would say. As Christians, how do we share truth in a postmodern culture? I mean, or, or do we even try, right? <laughs> do we try to share truth in a culture that doesn't believe there is a truth? I think most of us would just rather get by or survive until things change. <laughs> we'd, we'd rather moan about it, at least I would. Oh, our, you know, our awful society, I would rather moan about it. I'd rather dwell in the past and dream of better days, you know, like the 90s. Just kidding. The glory days of capitalism. Just kidding. But this is an age of opportunity. I think that's how we should look at it. We're living in an age of opportunity as Jesus' witnesses. Uh, it's very evident, I think, as we look around, people are hurting. People are hurting. They are searching for truth. This postmodern philosophy is just not working for people. We know by the state of our culture, the anxiety, the depression. Uh, this, this, science, this culture that we're living in is, even though they say there's no such thing as truth, they're looking for it. They're looking for it. Because it's not working. And so, what we need today is Christians who are intelligent and wise and loving to share truth with others. It's going to give them a foundation. Truth, capital T, truth. That gives people a foundation to build their lives upon. It's going to bring them stability, meaning, and purpose. So that's our subject today. And I would say that much of this sermon's intellectual property uh, rightly belongs to two individuals. One is named David Nobel. Um, he is uh, the founder of Summit Ministries. Actually, he wrote a, a book I had to read my first semester of Bible college. Just a cute little book of it, right? It's called Understanding the Times, and he'll go through all of the different worldviews out there. Christian, Islamic, secular humanist, Marxist, uh, postmodern. That's a book to get your hands on. So much of my sermon comes from his work there. And then also another, uh, another gentleman who is now the uh, president, I think we would call him, of Summit Ministries down in Colorado, uh, Dr. Jeff Myers, and uh, he recently wrote a book called uh, Truth Changes Everything. Truth Changes Everything. In fact, I was preparing this sermon, and I thought I was going to name the title of this sermon, Jesus Changes Everything, or Jesus Transforms Our Lives, Everything About Our Lives. That's where my mind was going, and then I noticed that Summit Ministries was having this, what they call a base camp. It's a virtual live event. Uh, and it was called Truth Changes Everything. So I said, well, I better tune into this. They do one in the spring and in the fall. And I couldn't believe how it lined up with my thoughts in this sermon. So I'm excited to share a lot of what I learned at this Truth Changes Everything conference this week. It was Thursday night. It's a three-hour session. You can watch it for yourself here in a couple weeks. 
But uh, we left off, remember, in chapter 19 of Acts, verse 10, Paul was in Ephesus, and it says, all who lived in Asia. Now, we're not talking about the country of Asia, right? We're talking, we're talking about this uh, ancient western province in today what we call Turkey. It's on the west coast of Turkey. He's at Ephesus in the city, this port city here. All who lived in Asia, the western half of Turkey there, uh, third, whatever it is, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So part of the reason why uh, everyone heard the word of the Lord, the gospel, was because Paul, remember, was laboring in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, and then he was laboring in there daily, and because he was laboring there, and there was like a, it was a port city, and there were different fingers that went out from Ephesus into all these different cities, like the churches of Revelation, uh, people would come to Ephesus, hear the message, and they would spread out from there. And then uh, at the same time, another reason is no doubt due in part to the extraordinary miracles that Paul performed here. This is what we would call a climactic uh, or heyday of ministry for Paul at Ephesus. So let's look at it, uh, verses 11 through 20 here. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. But also some Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Can you imagine that? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified." Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So Luke ends with a summary statement right there in verse 20. Uh, the word of the Lord kept growing mightily, but I'm going to tell you guys, this is not, you know, if I was just a topical preacher, I would not choose to preach on this passage. Uh, isn't this strange? Handkerchiefs and aprons and, and demons. So, Paul, it's, it's an exciting passage to say the least, right? It doesn't need any fancy introduction. But Paul is in Ephesus for nearly three years. This is one of the largest cities, remember, in the Roman Empire. It was a white Marble city, marble streets, marble pillars, marble structures and buildings, even marble statues and, and marble toilets. Can you imagine? Marble toilets. You see them right there? I, I put a picture up here. I think these things are fascinating. Um, these are everywhere, you know, in the ancient world. This is their public toilet. Uh, they might have running water running underneath them, too. And uh, 
Remember, they, had, they wore skirt-type things, so they weren't exposed or nothing. But they said you had to watch out for rats, because it's just like a sewer system. So anyway, that's fun. Um, <laughs> even though this city, in its heyday, was... Can I just say, I'm thankful for modern plumbing. I don't know about you. And doors. Okay? Anyway... This city in its heyday was just a gleaming white pearl, just brilliant white city. looked lovely from a distance. You know, the sun just beamed off of it. And even though it was a pearl, Satan had a very dark stranglehold on this city. It was a dark place, as we can see in the text that we just read. I mean, there is nothing but uh, ruins here today. It's, it's no longer necessarily a city. It's just ruins and this is largely due in part to the silting from the Caister River uh, that flows through this, this valley. Um, silting, you know what I mean? Sediment just kept coming in and it pushed uh, the, the port or the, this, the ocean out away from the city. So now there's six miles actually now between Ephesus and the coast. That's how much silting has gone on. And so now much of the city just kind of lies underneath a swampy marsh and you got more turtles there and frogs than you do people and so um actually it was in the uh, i think it was the third century i could look at my notes but the goths came and they invaded this city and uh destroyed it and since they were fighting the the, the you know the expanding coastline all the time they just they just gave up on it anyway and moved on but um miracles here stand out right paul was doing what Luke considered extraordinary miracles. Your Bible might say unusual. Uh, the Amplified Bible said both extraordinary and unusual miracles were being done here. And this is Luke's standard, right? And, and so the type of miracle and the, and the abundance of miracles done here were not normal, even in this day of abundant apostolic miracles. So this isn't the norm for Paul. There were times where Paul uh, couldn't heal at, at will. But nevertheless, it's, it's unique at, at Ephesus. And of particular interest to us is the use of handkerchiefs and aprons taken from Paul to the, to the sick and diseased or demon-possessed people. And when they touched these aprons or handkerchiefs that were Paul's, they, they, they brought healing or freedom. Well, these were likely sweat rags or dirty aprons, you know, that Paul might have worn around his head or around his waist while he was working, doing his tent making or his trade. And people were taking these sweat rags or these aprons, dirty aprons, and uh, they just taking them to different people who were sick and demon-possessed and, and being healed or being set free. And uh, God graciously allowed it to happen. I don't, it doesn't necessarily say Paul was in like full support of this, like wiping his head with rags and just handing them out. It just says people were taking them and it was happening. But what do we do with this? Why is this recorded for us? Well, I just want to mention a few things. For one, Luke's highlighting for us the ways in which Paul's power is paralleled both to the Apostle Peter and to Jesus. Remember earlier in the book of Acts, Peter the apostle to the Jews, the leading apostle to the Jews, he, I mean, he, his shadow would fall on people and they'd be healed. 
Um, Jesus in the gospel, uh, a woman, suffered a hemorrhage for years. She just barely touches the corner of his garment, basically, and she's healed just like that. Well, the same thing's happening through the apostle Paul. And so what we're seeing here is, is that Paul is equal in power, we could say, to Peter. So both Peter and Paul are equal in power to Jesus. Not equal in the sense of who they are as a person, but equal in power. Basically, the point is, even though Jesus has ascended, even though Jesus is in heaven, he's still at work in this world through his apostles. Remember, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, said that when Jesus ascended, the works that Jesus did before he ascended was only the beginning of what Jesus began to do. So even though Jesus ascended, he's still at work through these apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit, and both of their ministries resemble a power that is paralleled to Jesus' ministry in the gospel, and that's because Jesus is continuing to work through them. It's his power. The power source does not originate in Peter. It does not originate in Paul. The power source is Jesus. And he's at work through the Holy Spirit. So they're just kind of the conduit through which Jesus is working, kind of like us, right? When we have have spiritual gifts, where does that come from? Where's the power to exercise your spiritual gift come from? It comes from Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So uh, second, I think we need to remember that the purpose or function of miraculous signs and wonders that we're seeing throughout the book of Acts in particular, was to authenticate the apostles, okay, to support the apostles uh, and their message, their identity and their message. Remember, this, these miracles, these signs and wonders, are, are proving these apostles to be God's chosen instruments to lead this transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and to support the message that they preach. I like to see them as buttresses, you know, like a buttress on an ancient cathedral. You know, Notre Dame, uh, the, the building is the, is the gospel message, and then the miracles support that and prove it. You know, God's backing up the message with these unique miracles and these, uh, these messengers proclaiming it. And while I believe God still does miracles today, while I believe I've been a part of a couple of them through prayer, and at times God will allow personal individual miracles to happen today, while I pray for miracles to happen for my loved ones, like for my dad when he had cancer, and while I'm praying for loved ones in our congregation who have cancer, while I imagine that someday I'm going to get some sort of serious illness and I'm going to be praying for a miracle myself I still want to remember in that moment that ultimately the purpose of miracles is much more than our personal benefit you know what I mean by that the miracles are miracles because they are not commonplace that's what makes them a miracle because they're not normal Miracle's a miracle because it's not commonplace. The miracles here were designed, they had a purpose to verify God's message and the messengers. 
And you can, I got four, uh, or actually three, three texts there, Mark, Hebrews, and Corinthians. I, I'd recommend you looking those up. Because it talks about how these signs and wonders confirmed the apostles. They were such a thing as apostolic miracles. I'm afraid that when we fall for some of the, the signs and wonders hype out there today, or these new apostolic movements that we're really underestimating the unique role that apostolic miracles played in the early days of the formation of the church. One such example, I think I have it here. I put it in here sometime this week. Maybe I took it out. Somebody sent me, I should turn my Bible upside down and shake it out. Somebody sent me in the mail a, uh, you've probably received some of these too. I don't think I left it in here. I don't think I could stand it being in my Bible. I thought my Bible might catch on fire. Um, but <laughs> someone sent me in the mail uh, this, it was called a Blessed Prosperity Handkerchief made of paper. Have you guys seen these things? A Blessed Prosperity Handkerchief. It was made of paper, folded up. And they said that if I just touched this handkerchief, I would receive more happiness and healing and money in the bank, and I'd get a new car and all that. That's the prosperity gospel, right? They said, right, if you just, you just send this back, you touch it, you send it back with your gift, <laughs> right? My money, then I'd be blessed, and these blessings would be realized in my life. Guys, Beware. Beware. That's pretty obvious, though, isn't it? Paul wasn't using miracles to point people to himself. Paul was not using miracles for personal gain. He was using it to point people to Jesus, who is the truth. He's using it to point people to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That's a pretty narrow statement, don't you think? That Confucius is wrong, Muhammad's wrong, Joseph Smith's wrong. Only Jesus? Only if you put your trust in Jesus are you going to go to heaven? Think of how many people don't believe that. Think of how many people are going to hell for not believing that, if that's a true statement. That's what these miracles are backing up. They're backing up the truth. Supporting that narrow statement. I mean, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty narrow. And that's either true or it's not. It can't be, he can't be true and Mohammed be true and, I don't know, Joseph Smith be true. Someone's wrong. It's either true or false. We can't both, they can't all be true. If we witness a murder, I say me and you, witness a murder, from a distance, and there were two guys, three guys there, right? The one that got murdered, and then there's two other people there who both had guns, and one of them shot this guy, and the police come and they ask us, who shot him? And I point to one guy, you point to the other. There was only one gunshot. Who's true? Right? You can't both be true. We could never say, well, I'm true and you're true. We're both telling the truth. No, one of us is absolutely wrong. 
there is an objective truth that exists there. Anyway, miracles preached this. Truth exists. We can know it, number two, and then Jesus is the truth. It was pointing people to Jesus. Truth exists. It can be known. Jesus is the truth. And in a culture that's searching for truth within themselves, guilty in the past, by the way, right? You and I both. <laughs> Looking for truth within, it's, in this kind of culture, it's really helpful to think of truth as being outside of ourselves. So, in a postmodern culture, when we're witnessing, and they say, well, how do you know what you believe is really true? It's really not helpful to say, well, because it just feels right. Or, you know, my intuition. I'm, I'm just, it's basing it on my intuition. I go to this church or that church because I like the feeling I get. Not helpful in our culture. You want to know what you believe and why. You want your, your truth to be centered on the Word of God. I want to point people to the truth. I, see, when I go to witness, I'm not saying I, I believe this because it just feels good. I think it's, you know, I've... No, I want to say this is what God's Word says. This is the objective truth. This is not my truth. It's God's truth. We want to point people to objective truth because objective truth doesn't care about our feelings. That might sting a little bit, but truth doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care about how you feel necessarily. Truth is true whether you believe it or not. Truth is true whether you like it or not. So, Many, many people may not believe in eternal punishment in a place that the Bible calls hell, but they're going to experience it because they've rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've rejected the truth. Right? I didn't believe in it, but it's the truth, so I'm going to suffer the consequences of it. Right? So in the end, reality is what is, whether one prefers that reality or not. That's from a quote from David Noble in Understanding the Times. So when we don't point people to look within. We, we, we want people to look to Jesus. We want people to look to Scripture. That's where God's truth has been revealed. And that's what Paul's doing through the miracles. But another reason why God graciously provided these extraordinary miracles in Ephesus is because, as we saw, this place is just steeped in dark magic practices. So just like with every exorcism that we see, in the Gospels, and Jesus exercising demon after demon, right? Casting them out. He's not taking them for a run exercising. He's casting them out. Uh, yeah, I guess they got a little exercise out of it, too, if they had to leave. But I'm sorry, guys. Um, God is showing himself and his kingdom through every exorcism that his kingdom is more powerful than Satan's. That light casts out darkness. Darkness always overpowers, or light always overpowers darkness, never the other way around. If you walk into a room and it's dark, you turn the light on, it casts out the darkness. It's never the other way around. You can't turn on darkness. You know what I'm saying? Light casts it out. Jesus is more powerful than the darkness that's going on 
in Ephesus. And it's evident from the account of the sons of Sceva that Jesus' name is not a magic formula that we can just throw around like some sort of magic formula, you know, for self-promotion or from an unbelieving position. Uh, man, as an unbeliever, this reveals that you are, you are exposed to the darkness if you haven't trusted in Christ. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you don't want to mess around with this stuff. Uh, many ancient writings, by the way, reveal uh, professional exorcists were a real thing, and many of them were, were Jewish kind of offshoots. The, they used rings and amulets and roots and incantations and other different techniques to try and uh, draw demons out of people, right? Instead of commanding them out like Jesus, they would basically beg and plead and use these different approaches. And uh, sometimes they'd call on the name of Solomon, who they thought Solomon's name had power. And uh, after Christianity spread, they started... Uh, you can see in the ancient writings, they started throwing uh, Jesus' name in the mix with all these other names. In fact, there was another uh, third century writing again that uh, said Jesus was the God of the Hebrews. So that's pretty cool. But think of how it might have hit these people when Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. They're using Solomon's name to cast out demons before he got there. Now he says something greater than Solomon's here. And you know, if, if, these mir- if these sort of things were not really happening in Jesus' name, it wouldn't make sense for unbelievers then to go ahead and use them, right? Or for these to become part of incantations. And the incident that happened with the, the sons here the, caused such a stir in the believers that in a public act of repentance, they start burning their magic books. I mean, this is one of those just unique things that we see in the Bible. Uh, un, unapologetic, this is what happened. These are the facts. So they start burning their magic books and probably all the paraphernalia that went with it uh, because they realize the true source and nature of what just happened here. They, they know that this isn't magic versus miracles. This is good versus evil and and they're done with it they're not going to syncretize with the evil anymore that's diametrically opposed to god they're just done we're done with magic we're burning our books (laughs) Uh, this this is enough magic books that to pay one person in ephesus his daily wage every day seven days a week for 137 years that's a lot of money Fifty thousand. so this this wasn't a small thing done in a corner of the city by a little remnant this was this was a big public spectacle and the christians are living out the truth in accordance with the reality of what just happened and the culture of this city is changing keep that in mind but i find it ironic i have to say this that this passage would come up a week before halloween don't you when our culture celebrates death and the powers of darkness i didn't plan this by the way i didn't look at my calendar and say oh we're gonna be no i'm just kidding we're gonna be here you know in so many months i better pre no i didn't do that maybe it's maybe it's a wake-up call from god i don't know but believe me when i say that for most of us i don't think halloween is about loving death or darkness we we really want nothing to do with it right 
we just want our kids to dress up, have a good time, harvest some candy from the neighbors and businesses, have a good time. We might even look at Halloween as an outreach to reach our neighbors that we only see twice a year. But this passage this morning is a good reminder that we need to be wise about how we go about celebrating Halloween. Seeking to penetrate the darkness, but not dabbling in it. Know what I mean? As the sons of Sceva and the folks of Ephesus learned, evil is no joke. Evil is a real thing. Evil is not on our side. John 10 10 says that God wants to give us an abundant life in Christ, but evil, Satan, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, I find it refreshing, these Christians in Ephesus saying, we're just not going to have anything to do with it. But, again, you have freedom in Christ to do what you want. Second, let's look at the uprising over Artemis. And I spelled her name with a dollar sign. You'll see why. Um, now, after these things were finished, we've got to, we're going to finish the chapter here, so it's quite a bit. After these things, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines in Artemis, of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis is to be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29, The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And Paul wanted to go into the assembly. Uh, the disciples, though, would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, uh, these would have been prominent members in this society, uh, wealthy, probably, uh, leaders of the city, province, they were friends of his, sent to him, and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Right, so some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, right, a monotheist, he only believed in one God, a single outcry arose from them, all as they shouted for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there 
after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. That was the myth. So, since there are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in lawful assembly, for indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for the disorderly gathering. And after this, he dismissed the assembly. So, not quite a chunk there, but Paul's getting ready to move on to Ephesus. He's ready to visit some of these other churches in Greece again, and uh, he sends Timothy and Erastus ahead. And then, he's, and then we see here, for the first time, Paul's desire to go to Rome. Paul wanted to go preach the gospel at Rome and then use that as a, as a HQ, as a headquarter uh, hub, basically, to reach you know, clear over into Spain. He wanted to go as far west as he could. Um, but before he moves on, he's presented with this other challenge at Ephesus, this riot. It's the, the silversmiths who made trinkets you know, of Artemis, of her temple and of her statue, uh, they start a riot because this is starting to cut in, like Christians, Christianity is starting to cut into their, uh, you know, pocketbook. Uh, Christianity, what, what, we worship an invisible God, right? We don't make statues. And so, boy, they're out of, they're out of luck, right? There's a lot of people believing in, in Christ here. And uh, if only, if only he knew that we would just love to wear gold and silver crosses around our necks, right? <laughs> he could have turned that around. But... He wasn't a visionary, I guess. Ephesus uh, was home to this, this Greek goddess, Artemis. Um, she's the goddess of fertility. And as you can tell from the passage, so much of the commerce, the economy, was built around the worship of this false goddess. And uh, her temple was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's how big it was. It was Huge, 127 pillars, 60 foot high, larger than a football field, four times larger than the Parthenon in Greece that we've looked at recently. I mean, this thing was huge. Uh, they found, by the way, small little statues of her, trinkets that these silversmiths would have made. They found terracotta ones, marble ones, silver ones, gold ones. And uh, just I, also Demetrius. We have record of a guy named Demetrius who lived during this time. And guess what? He was the labor union foreman, basically. He was the head of the guild. So I just share all that because it's like, wow, it's, it's all right here. The Bible's telling the truth because we've unearthed the evidence to support it. It's just amazing. But basically, all you have left of her great, you know, temple is a swamp right there. Uh, it was destroyed. But as much as Paul... Right When they start this riot in the theater, he wants to rush into this theater. And uh, here's a, a picture of it. it held 25,000 people. And it's probably a large gathering there for two hours. They're shouting. Some don't even know why they're shouting. They just join in, right? Um, disciples, the disciples tell Paul it's not a wise thing to do. And so Paul listens. I thought that was great. Um, humble for such a leader to listen to these disciples and the... And, uh, it's pretty neat. 
So a city official is finally able to calm the crowd down, saying, basically, we're going to lose our freedom here in Ephesus because the one thing Paul did, or Rome didn't put up with was riots. And so that's how he got them to calm down. Um, he didn't want Rome to come and crush them with, their, with the heel, basically. So anyway, Luke shares this story to share, show with us, share, share with us basically how, how the gospel is changing the culture of this city. I mean, rich and poor Asiarchs are there. They believe in Christ. Uh, the culture's changing, and that's why the riot happens in the first place. But at the same time, he shows us that the gospel continues to advance. Yeah, there's opposition, but essentially the riot's ineffective. <laughs> and, and again, the message through Acts is you can't stop this thing. You can't stop the gospel from advancing because God's the one advancing it. Uh, I mean, look at it. Like Artemis, Artemis's temple today, it's gone. What's still here? The church of Jesus Christ. The gospel's still advancing. It's pretty neat to think about. But let's move into some closing thoughts here. Imagine with me if the Christians in Ephesus thought to themselves, you know what? We just better shut up now. The gospel's just creating way too many ripples. My neighbor's mad at me, got fired from my job. The gospel's just creating too many ways, and, you know, we better just not offend anyone with our truth anymore. <laughs> I don't want to offend their truth with our truth. Did you see what happened in that theater? I don't want to be a part of that. You see what I'm saying? Put yourself in their shoes. Right? We can laugh at this, but... The reality is we do this every single day. Deny the truth because we don't want to upset someone else's truth. 75% of people studies show are unwilling to share their views out of concern that they'll be socially shamed or lose their job. And that's both Democrat and Republican, by the way. <laughs> Mostly conservative. But, Rather than being silenced by fear, the major point of Dr. Meyer's book, Truth Changes Everything, was that we ought to do the opposite. Speak up. Speak up. Share the truth and live the truth. Don't let fear silence you. Remember, We Will Not Be Silenced by Erwin Lutzer. That's another great book to read. We Will Not Be Silenced. In a culture like this that we're living in, cancel culture, it's time to speak the truth and time to live the truth. You, you can look at it as a double helix, you know, the DNA strand. You can't have one without the other. You speak the truth and don't live it, pfft, I don't want nothing to do with your testimony, bud, right? Or you, you, you live the truth but don't speak it, how am I supposed to believe if I don't hear? It's a double helix, and you've got to have both if you want to be an effective witness. By the way, uh, Dr. Myers, when he wrote this book, he thought it was his last book. He's on, he was in a hospital bed when he wrote it. He had cancer. And he thought, if there's one message I want to send to this generation, living in this dark generation, this is it. And he basically encourages us as Christians that if we're going to move forward, if we're going to change our culture, we have to live the truth. 
We've got to speak it. We've got to live it. And he gives example after example of Christians from, you know, from, from history. Historical examples how Christians, everyday Christians, have changed the course of history and their culture by speaking the truth and living the truth. They were just genuine Christ followers. This is one of his main points. The best way to communicate truth is to live as if it were really true. You see, so, many, so much of the time, guys, we know the truth. We're just not living it. We've got to live the truth as if it's really true. And that's only done by the power of God's grace in Christ, right? It's not just a self-help program or self-effort program. It comes through God's grace. The Greek word for truth is aletheia, which means reality. You've got to live in accordance with reality. Living out the truth is living in light of reality that is really real. It's true truth. I think that was Francis Schaeffer who coined that. True truth. Real reality. Jesus Christ and the Bible have revealed reality, so we now know how to live. So it's like Jesus and His Word are like our compass that show us how to operate in this, in this time that we're living in. So what about postmodernists who don't claim truth exists? Well, guys, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm betting most people are just putting on a front. They just say, I don't believe in truth because they want to live how they want to live, you know, for a while until it doesn't work out. And then they hit rock bottom and then they're more open to it, you know. <laughs> at least that's what I did for a long time. People are searching. People are looking for truth because God has put eternity in our hearts. We know that there's life after death. We know we're going somewhere. And people are hurting. They're looking for unconditional love. Where are they going to find that? Christ. Where are they going to find their, their pain? Everybody's dealing with pain. Everybody's looking to heal their pain. We all have pain in our lives. Where are they going to find it? Where are they going to find healing? Where are they going to find comfort? Things that we've gone through. Well, Christ, right? That's where we find these things that everybody's looking for. Meaning, purpose, significance, love, significance. It's only found in Jesus. That's the unsugar-coated answer. You want life, you want meaning, you want purpose, you want stability. It's only found in Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Our culture right now is facing an epidemic, and I would say not so much of COVID, but due in part to COVID, but an epidemic of aimlessness and anxiety. 50% of young adults say there's no absolute value associated with human life. 75% of young adults say they're unsure of their purpose in life. 50% Young adults say they struggle with depression or anxiety. Just a lot of young adults because that's what Summit Ministries focuses on. But it tells us where the culture's heading. You know what I'm saying? The next generation, Gen Z, where it's heading, what they believe in. 6% believe in moral absolutes. That's going to cause a wreck, guys. That's going to cause some chaos in people's lives.
So we get to be the ones, in summary, to tell people where to find hope and meaning and purpose and forgiveness and love and grace and significance. That's an opportunity, isn't it? Because people are hurting, they need to hear this. And we get, to, we get to beautify the gospel with our lives as we live the truth. The truth brings meaning to every aspect of our lives. Even the mundane. They say that what we believe about God and the world and ourselves subtly affects the ten to 20,000 decisions we make every day. Imagine what would happen if every Christian lived out the truth in each of their decisions, large and small. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Imagine Christians abiding in the truth, basically I mean, obeying Christ, experiencing freedom so that they can show others the way to freedom. How are you going to show people the way to freedom if you're not free? So we've got to abide in the truth. That sets us free, helps us to free others. I like to think, guys, that each one of our lives is adding to the culture. Each one of your lives is adding to the culture of this church and the testimony of this church. Um, The culture of my home is determined by me. That's a scary thing, isn't it? I can't point around, I can't point fingers. Every single one of us adds to the culture that we're in. I set the tone of the culture in my home. And the gospel is going to advance and the culture is going to change positively when God's people get serious about their sin and following Jesus. Does that make sense? Throughout history, everyday Christians have changed the course of history. They've impacted their culture not by picketing and rioting, not by going and getting all the magic books and burning them, sorry, I need to mention that for us, but just by living out the truth. Scientists, artists, authors, educators, parents, politicians, businessmen, you name it. They all just lived out the truth. That's what's going to change things. They just lived it out in their marriages, in their homes, in their workplace, at the Thanksgiving table. At the water cooler, at the, in the lunchroom, at work. And so with that in mind, I just want us to consider the Ephesians who said, I'm done with this. Right? They said, I'm done with magic, is what they said. It was time in their lives they, they realized, this isn't good. This is going to hinder our walk with God. This is actually opposed to what God's will is for my life. And so, as Christ's followers, we've got to look into our own lives like these Ephesians and say, what is it in my life that's not consistent with the truth? How is my life not lining up with the truth? We're supposed to be a repentant bunch of people. That's what we're supposed to be known for. People who repent. And so I'm, I'm going to look in my life and I'm going, to, I'm going to say, what decisions am I making that, have been comp- that, are, that are compromising habits, right? That are stamping out the light of my witness. What is it in my life that I'm seeking love or satisfaction or purpose in that has nothing to do with God? In fact, it's 
diametrically opposed to God and his will for my life? You know, what is it that I'm, that's, that's in my life that's really self-destructive, that's hindering the abundant life that God wants for me in Christ? And so I'm looking into my own life, and I'm saying, I'm saying maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's an attitude I'm not repenting of. Is there a substance or an attitude? Maybe it's a, my words. My use of words in the home are setting a, the tone of the culture in my home. Is it my words, how I'm treating my parents or how my parents are treating me or how I'm treating my kids? Uh, maybe it's unforgiveness I'm harboring. I'm harboring a grudge against someone, a family member, a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, maybe... It's a form of unwholesome entertainment that I'm just keep exposing myself to that I know that ain't right, but I'm doing it anyway. Whatever it is for you, guys, I encourage you to repent. Repent of it this morning. Get back in line with the truth. Live the truth. Live the truth. Maybe today, this morning, you just need to repent of sin in general. I don't mean it's a specific sin. It's just sin. I'm a sinner, God, and I need a Savior. And I want to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Maybe today is the day that you need to repent in that fashion. And then, on top of repentance, I would say, just, I just want to encourage you guys to get, get your hands on some of these materials I've been talking about. But I don't know, understanding the times or truth changes everything. And just start developing your knowledge of worldviews. Because we need smart, intelligent Christian witnesses today who can right see through like what people believe see what people believe and have the answers for it right we need christians who know what they believe and why and 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 what other people believe and why and so god help us with that lord we're thankful so thankful for uh the truth that we've seen here in acts chapter 19 that no matter how ugly things get uh, no matter how dark our culture is or maybe our nation is, that ultimately the gospel prevails and your kingdom is more powerful. And in the end, like Daryl prayed right before I came up here, that in the end, you're going to win. But Lord, in the meantime, as we wait for your kingdom to come in all of its fullness, I pray that you would help us to be winsome witnesses um, who can show people the truth, not just with our our words, but also with our lives. Help us, each one of us, Lord, to live the truth and to be aware of how our lives are setting the culture for our homes, for our marriages, for our society and workplace. Give us opportunities to, uh, to share truth with others in a way that is loving and considerate and intelligent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.